Well, it's great to see all of you again. It's good to be back from uh, India, Nagaland. And uh, I won't bore you with all the details, but if you're curious about anything, I'd be glad to fill in. But <clears throat> we were able to dedicate a church uh, in a very remote area of Nagaland, which Nagaland's remote to begin with. Um, that the money for that church was donated through our ministry. Um, took, I think it took six or eight years to finally get the church done, but it's done. Uh, we had a conference with the pastors. Uh, I've mentioned this before, but if you're not familiar with Nagaland, they're not Indians, they're actually tribal people. There are, I think, 26 tribes in the, uh, in the overall Naga uh, people group, and uh, we work particularly with one tribe, which is the Yimchunger tribe, although we uh, oftentimes have opportunities to deal with some of the others. I think we had pastors from three different tribes that came to the dedication, and then the two days after that we stayed, and then uh, I was able to go to the theological college Kyoto Theological College sits up on the side of a mountain. Actually, from the kitchen area, you can look out and you can see Mount Saramati. I get Saramati and Sirapati mixed up. <laughs> Saramati is the mountain that is on the border between Nagaland and Burma. So we've been on the other side of that. Uh, in Burma before, but it's a pretty remote, wild area. Uh, the Bible College now has about 70 students. Um, we were able to take funds for about 13 new students to start attending the school. A lot of the students just can't afford to go, and they, they don't charge very much, but obviously they have to charge for food, and the staff have to make a little bit. I don't think they make much but we were able to, to uh, provide support for those 13 students. Uh, we were also able to take a, a gift to all the people on the staff so they all got kind of a bonus, which was something very rare for them. Uh, Nan and our granddaughter and the other young lady stayed at the children's home. Uh, the children's home in Tunsang uh, takes care of uh, girls. They used to have boys and girls, but there's another uh, orphanage that now takes in boys, so they just deal with the girls. And they were able to stay with them while I was off running around in the mountains. Uh, and they had a great ministry there with the girls. Uh, when that was all done, we went to Hyderabad, and we had a conference with about 130 people, I think 70 pastors. Some of them brought their wives. And that lasted for three days. Uh, after that, we went to a remote village for some ministry in a remote church. Um, long journey, three, three flights home. The middle flight's 15 hours. You actually go from Doha in the Middle East up over the top of the world, up over the North Pole and down the other side to San Francisco. So it's a long, long flight. You, you sit there and you, you think you've been flying forever and you go, oh, we've got to be getting close and you've only been on the plane four hours and you've got 11 hours to go, so it is a bit of a drag, but we got back safe and sound. We had some turbulence actually going over. Uh, on the flight over, we were going over Iceland, and uh, 
not the worst turbulence that I've ever been in by any stretch, but it was pretty, uh, pretty turbulent. And of course, the girls were uh, a little bit nervous, and I think Nan was a little bit nervous. And I was just smiling at them and telling them everything's going to be fine. But we, we made it through. No, I. You know what? I'm ready to go down. That, I, I tell them. I tell them all the time, if the plane goes down, I'm standing up and preaching the gospel till it hits. <laughs> I didn't mind going down. I wanted to be able to return a 14-year-old and an 18-year-old. Yeah. She, was, yeah, she was more worried about getting the girls home safe. So, but, uh, Are those uh, Christians persecuted by the other religions there? Was there any danger? Uh, in, in Nagaland, it's very interesting. Uh, Christian missionary went into Nagaland back in the late 1800s. The guy had to walk 160 days to get there. It's, it's mountains like you can't even believe, some of the steepest mountains in the world. Uh, and he went in and evangelized and got the gospel into that area, and it just took off like wildfire and spread through the whole land. Every village, every town in Nagaland has a church. So it's a very, very strong Christian area. They're not going to likely have persecution because one of the things I love about the Nagas, number one, they're uh, widespread Christians. Number two, they're mountain people. And number three, they believe in the right to keep and bear arms. So if, if anybody attacks them, they're going to fight back, uh, which in so many other places they have no ability to do. Uh, there is persecution in the state next to Nagaland, which is Manipur. There's been quite a bit of persecution there. And some of us know uh, my good friend Fassel, who's in Pakistan right now. Persecution in Pakistan right now is really horrible. There are a lot of people being killed. Uh, homes and churches burned down. Families attacked. People shot. It's, it's just really bad. So if you think about it, please pray for the the poor people there in Pakistan. Um, a lot of the pastors that we had at the pastors' conference in Hyderabad are persecuted in their villages uh, by the Hindus. Uh, a lot of the shopkeepers won't sell to them. Um, you know, they get... Uh, it's, it's not quite as high level as what you run into in Pakistan. It's more of a low-level persecution, but they do suffer quite a bit. But anyway, we appreciate all your prayers. We knew you were praying for us, and we were thinking of you. Nan, would, would, she keeps track of the time zones. When I get where we're going, I'm just in the zone there. But she'd remind me, uh, Friday night classes about to start, and we'd think about you and send up prayers for you and everything, and I appreciate John filling in for me when I'm away. So that's kind of the brief uh, report, and if... If you have questions or there's anything you'd like to know, I'd be happy to try to answer that. Tonight we're going to get into Revelation 20, and you have the notes, and as most of you know, I don't like following notes. I don't like just reading notes to you. You can read the notes yourself. I will try to hit on the high points uh, of some of the areas here in Revelation 20. But you might want to have a pen handy because I'll also be bringing in things that are not in the notes. So you might want to jot some of those ideas down. Um, well, let's, let's just pray again and then we'll 
we'll get into it. Gracious Heavenly Father, we are gathered here tonight recognizing that uh, we are weak and frail and helpless. And apart from your spirit ministering to us from the word, uh, we would be incapable of really gaining any ground in our spiritual lives. So, Father, we humble ourselves under your mighty hand, and we just pray that the Spirit of God would open our eyes and our ears and provide the illumination that we need to be able to understand and incorporate your word into our lives. We're so thankful, Father, for the sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself in our place, paid the debt that we could never pay on the cross so that we could have the free gift of eternal life. And we will be forever grateful for that. And we uh, pray that even as we look now into Revelation 20 and we consider events that are not yet here, uh, we know as sure as they're in your word that they're coming. And so we look forward with eager anticipation to the victory that we will share with Jesus Christ. And we pray these things in his name. Amen. Amen. I've mentioned this before, but it's worth noting again, there are, there are really three approaches that people take to the book of Revelation. <clears throat> Two of them I consider completely worthless, but I mention them to you anyway. Uh, there are people that look at the book of Revelation as uh, the position is called the preterist position, and they say all of this stuff happened with the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD. All of this is past history. Uh, which is pretty tragic because here we are in chapter 20 and we're looking at things that haven't happened yet. Uh, so that's the preterist position uh, that all of this basically was fulfilled in the past. Others take kind of an allegorical approach and they believe the book is not really to be taken uh, as actual fact. It's more uh, ideas or lessons or sort of parables uh, just to give us comfort and encouragement that it'll all work out uh, in the end somehow. Uh, to me, that's kind of airy-fairy, and I don't see that it really gives us anything to dig our teeth into and hang on to. Uh, I'm convinced that the only way to approach Revelation is the same way that we approach all the rest of Scripture, and that is we take the literal approach. Uh, we believe that it means what it says. Uh, the literal approach doesn't... Uh, deny the fact that there are symbols that are used, uh, that there are often parables that are given or metaphors uh, and so forth, uh, but those techniques that communicate the metaphor or whatever it may be hold a truth that is an absolute truth. And if we accurately interpret Scripture, which ultimately means letting Scripture interpret itself, uh, we're going to gain the true meaning from that. You'll notice if you have your notes open on page 73, I mentioned that Revelation is a prophetic book that actually looks at future history in five different areas. Uh, one of them we're actually in, which is the church age, and we actually see an overview of the seven churches of Asia in chapters one through three, conditions that prevail in various churches to a greater or lesser extent all around the world. Uh, they're still with us today. Uh, you can go through the seven churches of Asia. They were literal churches. They were actually churches that John ministered to in a circuit ministry, uh, but they were specifically selected 
to be used here in Revelation because they represent conditions uh, that exist in various churches. And then, of course, we have in chapters 4 and 5, the church in heaven. Uh, we have the call in chapter 4 and verse 1, come up here. I take that to correlate with the rapture of the church, which Paul teaches about in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. It's interesting that church is mentioned 19 times in the first three chapters. Once we get to chapter 6, from chapter 6 to 19, which is dealing with the period that we know as the tribulation period, church is never mentioned. And I believe that uh, the obvious reason is because the church is not here. So we have the tribulation period in chapter 6 to 19. Tonight we go into chapter 20. We're going to look at the millennium. And then, of course, next week, and I told Nan we'll probably finish Revelation tonight and next week. And looking over chapter 21 and 22, I realize it's not going to happen. It's going to take at least three more classes. So we'll have the eternal state in chapters 21 and 22. Just to take note, the word millennium, of course, refers to the thousand years. And there are those that say, no, a thousand years doesn't mean a literal thousand years. It just means some figure that gives us some hope that something is going to happen. To me, all that's too, you know, I want something I can seek my teeth in. And it's interesting that the thousand years is mentioned six times in this chapter. Uh, there are those who take the amillennial position. They say, no, there's not going to be any millennium. There's not going to be any kingdom on the earth. Uh, it's, it's not really going to happen. This is all just kind of figurative language. Um, you know, when, when Scripture mentions something six times in a chapter, I think we should take it seriously. So uh, the Greek word for thousand is kilios, from which we get kilo. Uh, and of course, when you take it into Latin, it is mile, and mile anum is a thousand years, and so we get the millennium from the Latin, if that's a help to you in any way. Very interesting that human history begins in the garden, perfect environment. Human history, you were just asking me about this, Holly, is going to end in a garden, Paradise literally means the garden of the king. We're going to be in the garden of the king for a thousand years. We're going to have perfect government, perfect environment, perfect everything, and yet people are still going to rebel against Christ, which really shows the depth of human depravity. It shows how hard-hearted people can really be. And of course, uh, we see this, and I'm sure all of you see this, Friends, family, relatives that we try to talk to, we try to appeal to them, we try to witness to them, try to represent Christ to them, and sometimes we just, it's like running into a rock wall. Uh, they just don't want to hear. And of course, God always has the ability to break through that wall, and that's always what we pray for, uh, for those that we witness to and those that we love. The chapter basically breaks into four sections, and what I'm going to do is I'm going to read each section, and then I'm going to make a few comments. Uh, and anywhere along the way, I like to be very uh, casual. Uh, if something is not clear, shoot your hand up. I love questions. Uh, I love trying to answer them. I don't like it if you ask me something I don't know, but if you do, I'll just tell you I don't know. 
So we're going to begin with the binding of Satan in verses 1 through 3. John says, Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, having the key to the bottomless pit. We've seen the bottomless pit uh, earlier in chapter 9. Uh, we saw that demons were released out of the bottomless pit onto the earth. He said it had a great chain in his hand. He laid hold of the dragon, that serpent of old, who is the devil, and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. And he cast him into the bottomless pit and shut him up and set a seal on him so that he should not deceive the nations, so that he should deceive the nations no more until the thousand years were finished. After these things, he must be released for a little while. Um, it's very interesting that what we have happening here is something that I often refer to as Operation Footstool. You might remember the promise that was given in Psalm 110, verse 1, concerning the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. After the resurrection, God the Father said to God the Son, or as Psalm puts it, the Lord said unto my Lord, Yahweh said unto my Adonai, is what the Hebrew says, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. So what we're seeing now in Revelation 20 is the fulfillment of the promise. We know that after the resurrection, Jesus Christ ascended into the presence of the Father and it tells us that he sat down at the right hand of God. By the way, as believers in Jesus Christ, positionally, you are seated there with him. Very important for us to understand that. Paul makes a very strong point for this in Ephesians chapter 2. Uh, about verses 5 through 7, uh, makes the same point in Colossians 3, verses 1 through 4, that every child of God, every believer in the Lord Jesus Christ is seated with Him at the right hand of God. And that should challenge us a little bit. Uh, it should cause us to realize not only the exaltation that we have in Christ, but also to realize not just the privilege, but the resources that are ours. We were just singing the song, All Authority is given to Him, but what did He say? In Matthew 28, 18 to 20, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things I've commanded you, and lo, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. So that authority has been given to us in a commission, and nothing can stop that commission from being fulfilled as long as we're willing to make ourselves available, and it starts outside our front door. You know, I, I've often said this, and missionaries sometimes scoff at this, because missionaries kind of like to think they're special Christians, uh, really all of us are missionaries. They may be called to a foreign field, but we are all called to our sphere of influence and whatever mission opportunities are ours. So Operation Footstool. Uh, the chain that the angel has, I take to be the chain of darkness that's mentioned in Jude chapter 1 and verse 6. Uh, if you go to that uh, book later on, you'll notice that there are already angels that are chained in the abyss, and it says that they are chained under darkness. The mighty angel laid hold of the dragon. Krateo is a word that means to 
lay hold of with a firm and a mighty grasp. In other words, he's not getting away. Uh, Satan, of course, at one time was the mightiest of all the angels. Uh, as Lucifer, he was the anointed cherub that covers. Uh, I take that to mean that he not only was the guardian of the throne room of God, but also that he was the high priest of the angels. His job was to lead the angels in the worship of God. And then, of course, uh, pride entered in, and uh, his beauty, uh, his wisdom, his magnificence went to his head, and you have the fall of Lucifer recorded in Isaiah 14 and Ezekiel 28. Uh, he, he's not so powerful now. This mighty angel takes a hold of him, and he's under arrest. He's not getting loose. Michael is the only angel that we see in Scripture that would likely have that power, uh, but he's not named here, so whether it's Michael uh, or possibly another, we don't know. Notice that four titles are given here to describe exactly who we're talking about. He's called the dragon. We saw that earlier in Revelation 12, verses 3 and 4. And then, of course, the serpent relates him to the temptation in the garden in Genesis 3. Devil is a word, diabolos actually means slanderer or accuser. Now, this is his practice against God and against those who believe in him. And then Satan means adversary and shows his opposition to all that is God. So Satan is laid hold of and thrown into the bottomless pit. Again, the time period of a thousand years. Uh, if you think about it, this is quite interesting. The Bible tells us that in this life, we have three main enemies. Remember what they are? There you go. World, flesh, and devil. I want you to stop and think what this thousand year period is going to be like. The devil's locked up, so he's no longer active or effective. The world, and the, when we use the word world, we're actually talking about the world system. Uh, it's a system of uh, an order basically under Satan. That is going to be radically transformed. There's only going to be one enemy left of the three in the lives of those who are going to be on this earth, and that's the flesh. The flesh, of course, is a reference to what we refer to as the old sin nature. What does Jeremiah tell us? Jeremiah 17, 9. Heart is deceitful above all things. And? Desperately sick. Desperately wicked, and who can know it? The millennium is going to prove that. It says... Scripture specific, Satan is tossed into the bottom of the pit. What about all of his minions? All of his? The demons. Okay, we have no information one way or the other. Uh, I would suggest without his authority and leadership, they're basically inactive, but we're, we're not given okay. any information one way or the other. Um, we do know that there are some angels already chained in Tartarus. Uh, we've talked about that before. All right, so that is 
the beginning of Operation Footstool. Look at verses four through six. We have the first resurrection and the second death. I saw thrones and they sat on them. Question is, who are they? Judgment was committed to them and I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for their witness to Jesus and for the word of God who had not worshiped the beast or his image and had not received his mark on their foreheads or on their hands and they lived and they reigned with Christ for a thousand years. If we just do a quick... timeline might help us understand this here's the cross future time Christ dies buried resurrected Holy Spirit comes into the world this begins what we refer to as the church age church age lasts from Pentecost to the rapture of the church after the rapture we have the time of tribulation seven years that's identified for us in many, many passages. And then the millennium, which is actually the kingdom that God promised to Israel. <clears throat> when we have the second coming of Christ to earth, we have, of course, the victory over all of his uh, enemies on the earth in the battle of Armageddon. Only believing people enter into the tribulation that are into the millennium. They're still alive. If they survive the tribulation, they go into the kingdom. But many, many, many multitudes are going to be put to death. The fact that they are going to reign with him for a thousand years tells us something. There's a resurrection here, right? Hold your place and turn with me and let's look at a couple of passages. Go back to Daniel. Daniel chapter 12. Daniel 12, verse 1. At that time, Michael shall stand up, the great prince who stands watch over the sons of your people, and there shall be a time of trouble such as never was since there was a nation, even to that time. Obviously referring to the tribulation. At that time your people shall be delivered, everyone who is found written in the book. Many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. Those who are wise will shine like the brightness of the firmament, and those who turn many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. It's very interesting that Daniel just mentions, doesn't delineate, doesn't clarify that there are going to be two resurrections. A resurrection of the just and a resurrection of the unjust. Go with me now to John chapter 5. Jesus mentions the same thing. John chapter 5, beginning in verse 24. Most assuredly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes in him who sent me has everlasting life. Notice present tense. He has it at that moment. Has everlasting life and shall not come into judgment, but has passed from death into life. Most assuredly, I say to you, the hour is coming and now is when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. 
For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son to have life in himself and has given him authority to execute judgment also because he is the Son of Man. Verse 28, do not marvel at this, for the hour is coming in which all who are in the graves will hear his voice and come forth. Those who have done good, this is confusing to a lot of people, I'll explain it here in a minute. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life, those who have done evil to the resurrection of condemnation. So once again, following along with what Daniel says, we have two resurrections mentioned. Resurrection of the just, resurrection of the unjust. What does he mean by those who have done good? Does this mean that our good deeds are going to get us into heaven? The key, of course, is found in the text. Literally what the Greek says is those who have done the good thing has a definite article. It's neuter. The good thing. What is the good thing that gives us eternal life? Well, Jesus tells us in John chapter 3, God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son so that whoever believes in Him would not perish but have everlasting life. What is the evil? Dropping on down a little bit there in John chapter 3, you remember what he says in verse 19. He talks about the fact, let me just back up and read it. This is the condemnation that light has come into the world and men love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. Everyone practicing evil hates the light and does not come to the light lest his deeds should be exposed. But he who does the truth comes to the light that his deeds may be clearly seen that they have been done in God. So ultimately, it all comes down to faith or unbelief. All good comes as a result of faith, regeneration, the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, the fact that we become a new creature in Christ, all evil ultimately is a result of the rejection of Jesus Christ. So the good thing, obviously, there is believing in the Lord Jesus Christ. One more passage before we get back to Revelation, 1 Corinthians 15. I just want to show you that John is not just picking ideas out of the air. He's actually building on thoughts that have been around for thousands of years. 1 Corinthians 15. I'm sure you're familiar, 1 Corinthians 15, the most extended passage in the Bible on the resurrection. Uh, Paul does a very masterful argument for the resurrection to the Corinthian believers because some of them had been misled to say that the resurrection, there was no bodily resurrection. But the part we want to look at begins in verse 20. 1 Corinthians 15, 20. But now Christ is risen from the dead and has become the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Remember what first fruits was? That was the first of your harvest. You would go out and bring in the first of your harvest. And what did the first of the harvest imply? More harvest to come and harvest of the same kind. You didn't go out and harvest wheat. And then when you went back for the second, when you got corn or barley or, you know, it's, it's the same thing, the first fruits. So Christ is the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. 
The Bible always uses the term fallen asleep for believers. Why? Because the body rests in the grave. The soul and the spirit immediately go into the presence of the Lord and that body's going to wake up one day in resurrection. <clears throat> Verse 21, For since by man came death, by man also came the resurrection of the dead. As in Adam all die, even so in Christ all shall be made alive. Very important question. Where are you? There's only two places any human being can be. In Adam, unregenerate, unsaved, or in Christ. Verse 23, and this is where what Daniel said in Daniel 12 and what Jesus said in John 5, now Paul begins to add some important information and it's all going to come together in Revelation 20. Notice verse 23, each one in his own order. The word order is a military term. It means rank. Each one in his own order, each one in his own rank, in his own company, we could say. Christ the firstfruits, that's number one. Afterward, those who are Christ at his coming, and then comes the end. Let me just lay this out. Resurrection. Number one, Christ. Number two, those at his coming. His coming's in two parts, right? Rapture. Second coming, rapture, resurrection of church age saints, second coming, resurrection of tribulation, and as I'll show you from Scripture, all Old Testament saints are going to be resurrected at this point, and then comes the end. He's not talking about the end of time. He's talking about the final resurrection because millennial saints have to be raised as well. In other words, there's going to be four phases of the first resurrection. Is this confusing to you? First resurrection. Believers only. Remember Jesus said the resurrection of the just and the resurrection of the unjust. The resurrection of the unjust through all of history doesn't happen until here. UB stands for unbeliever that's when the unbeliever will be resurrected and judged. Watch and you'll see it play out here as we read on. So they lived and reigned a thousand years, verse 5, the rest of the dead, all unbelievers, the rest of the dead in verse 5 did not live again until the thousand years were finished. This... This is the first resurrection. Just before the kingdom starts. Well, it is, except it includes... The first resurrection relates to believers. Okay. Okay? This is the first resurrection. So at this point, we're here. Right before the millennium. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is he who has part in the first resurrection. Over such the second death has no power. First resurrection, second death. They shall be priests of God and of Christ and shall reign with him a thousand years. So all believers who have died up to this point are resurrected 
to live and reign in the kingdom for a thousand years and they escape what he refers to here. I'll draw a picture of a fire. The second death. Made real simple. This is how I put it to the pastors in India. If you're only born once, you're going to die twice. You're going to die physically, and then you're going to die at the final judgment. That is called eternal death. What hell, the lake of fire, however you want to refer to it, is a perpetual dying. It is dying without being able to die. The worst of the worst. When we fear death, we were talking about being on the plane. The plane starts to go down. You know, none of us really want to experience that. But the thing of it is, we may go down in the plane, but we're coming right back up. What about all the people on the plane without Christ? That's really where our, our mind and our thoughts ought to be. And we're surrounded by people. You know, we walk down the street. Sometimes I'm just overwhelmed walking down a street, sitting in an airport, being at a sports activity. And I look around and I think, how many of these people are without Christ? How many of these people are without hope? I can't get in a big gathering without praying for the whole gathering. I pray in airports. I pray in planes. God, you know these people. You know everyone's name. You know every hurt, every pain, every heartache, every sorrow. You know the things that are blocking them from coming to faith in you. Would you, by your spirit, work in the hearts and souls of every single person here so that at the very least, none of them will ever be able to say, I never heard. I never heard the gospel. I never heard the truth. And I believe that when I get into eternity, I'm going to see an answer to those prayers that are prayed, and I think we should all be praying like that. All right, how do we... I said that I will show from Scripture that Old Testament saints, we'll put them back here, Old Testament believers, they're going to be included in this resurrection right here. How do we know that? Turn to Jeremiah chapter 30. This is only one of a couple of different passages, but this is a pretty good one. Jeremiah chapter 30. You actually have it there in your notes, but I thought it would be worth us turning to. Jeremiah 30, verse 8. It shall come to pass in that day says the Lord of hosts that I will break his yoke from your neck and will burst your bonds. Foreigners will no more enslave them. They will serve the Lord their God and David their king. What? Whom I will raise up for them. They will serve David their king. Did you know David's going to reign again? David is going to reign from Jerusalem for a thousand years. How about that? Christ is going to reign over not only the earth, but the universe. We, Scripture says, are going to reign and rule with Christ for a thousand years. So picture what an astounding time it's going to be in the kingdom because going into the kingdom, we're going to have Old Testament resurrected saints. 
We're going to have church age resurrected saints. We're going to have tribulation resurrected saints. And we're going to have living people from the earth that go into the millennium to repopulate the earth. By the way, in the year 1,000, you know how many people were on the earth in the year 1,000? 1,000 A.D., 310 million. From 1,000 to 2,000, roughly, we went from 310 million in 1,000 years to 8 billion. And that's with world wars, plagues, famines, criminal activity, and everything else. Here, no one is going to die in the kingdom unless they die because of blatant sin. That's what it means when it says Christ will rule with a rod of iron. If you commit a capital offense, you will die. That's why the prophets say that a man 100 years old that dies will be called a child. Why? Because the people that come into the kingdom, and this will include the 144,000 Jewish evangelists, they're going to repopulate the earth. And they're going to live through the entire time. And at the end, they're going to receive their resurrection without even dying. How amazing is that going to be? God has a great plan. So, those who are resurrected after the millennium are those who die during the millennium. Well, no, they'll live, they'll live all the way through the millennium and get their resurrection without even experiencing death. They'll receive a glorified body. There's no reason for them to die. Why would they have to die? Similar to the rapture of the church, correct? Very similar to the rapture when those who are alive are just transformed in, in a moment. <laughs> Again, I want to call your attention. Verse 2, verse 3, verse 4, verse 5, verse 6, and verse 7. A thousand years is repeated over and over and over again. I kind of have a feeling that when God repeats something over and over, kind of like in the creation in Genesis 1, God created each after its kind, after its kind. Why does he keep saying that? I kind of think that maybe it blows the idea of evolution out of the water. Each according to its own kind. That repetition is important. This book is only so big. I know it seems like a great big book, and this one's a huge one because Holly and Bill gave it to me so that I could actually see because my eyes are not that, that clear, which I appreciate so much. But stop and think. If you had the wisdom of the universe, if, if you were going to set yourself the task of writing down everything important that people need to know, could you fit it in a book this size? And I actually have a whole Bible that I bought in Australia at a second-hand shop. It had never been read. Pristine, little, leather-bound Bible that big, and it's Old and New Testament. I don't use it now because even with these, I can't hardly read the little fine print. God was able to put everything we need to know, and of course, we being stiff-necked the way we are and hard-headed, we always want to know things that he didn't see fit to tell us. Well, what about this? Well, I don't know, but there's a whole lot here that I haven't 
completely grasp yet, so I'm going to stick with what's here, right? So what an amazing thing that we hold in our hand, the Word of God. And the Word of God, you know what we're going to do through the millennium? We're going to have Bible class. We might be taught by Isaiah. We might get to have a class with the Apostle Paul. But the greatest thing is that we're going to sit at the feet of Jesus Christ. And I have a feeling when the living word opens the written word, and I've studied this book over 50 years, I have a feeling I'm going to sit there and go, why didn't I see that? Why didn't I get that? It's so clear. And it will be at that time. All right. Let's move on in verse 7. Satan's final rebellion. When the thousand years have expired, Satan will be released from his prison and go out to deceive the nations, that's what he does, which are in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog. Uh, you know Gog and Magog from the Ezekiel 38. Uh, the Gog-Magog area really related to uh, what we call today Turkey. Uh, but it's actually used as a symbol of uh, rebellion against God. So Gog and Magog to gather them together to battle whose number is as the sand of the sea. Think about this after a thousand years. Everybody says environment is our problem. <laughs> if only we had a good environment. Criminals wouldn't be criminals. Thieves wouldn't be thieves. If there was no poverty, a thousand years, just try to, no disease, no crime, no poverty, a thousand years of perfect rule, freedom like we have never ever known, and after a thousand years of that, people are going to say, I'd rather follow the devil's plan. That's how hard-hearted the wicked sin nature of man can be. <clears throat> As the sand of the seashore, that many will be deceived. They went up on the breadth of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city, and fire came down from God out of heaven and devoured. This is not even going to be a fight. At the end of the tribulation, we have the Battle of Armageddon. That is going to be an awesome battle. We've stood on the hill of Megiddo, what's called Armageddon. Har means hill. The hill of Megiddo, you look down, Napoleon stood there and said this would make the greatest battlefield in the world. Just a great big, huge, flat plain. And we're told that the slaughter in the valley of Megiddo or in the plain of Megiddo is going to fill the valley of Jehoshaphat with blood to the bridle, uh, to the, the uh, horse's bridles, four or five feet deep. This battle is going to be different. It's going to be fire coming down from heaven and putting an end to the rebellious. Verse 10, the devil that deceived them was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone. Notice where the beast and the false prophet are. You remember they got thrown there back here? The beast and the false prophet at the end of the tribulation, second coming of Christ, are thrown into the lake of fire. A thousand years later, they're still there. 
and the devil is thrown into the lake of fire with them. And that brings us to the last little section, starting here in verse 11, the great white throne judgment. Then I saw a great white throne, and him who sat on it, from whose face the earth and heaven fled away, and there was found no place for them. And I saw the dead, small and great, standing before God. Here's the second resurrection, which is going to lead to the second death. All unbelievers of all of history... And it's very interesting. Books were open. The, the Bible talks quite a bit about books in heaven. Uh, here, books, plural. The books are going to be open. We're, we're really kind of told what the books are. <clears throat> the books were open. Another book was open, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged according to their works, or your translation may say deeds. They were judged according to their deeds by the things that were written in the books. So you have two books. Here's one book. This is the book of deeds. You have another book. Book of life. The unbeliever stands before the Lord Jesus Christ. Each one of them has their day in court, and guess what they're judged by? This may shock you. Not their sins. They're not judged for their sins. How do we know that? Because their sins were paid for here. Christ died for all men. Christ paid the penalty for all sins 2 Corinthians 5.19 tells us that God does not even impute to the unbeliever his own sins. He does not place that man's sins to his account, his eternal account, because they were placed on Jesus Christ at the cross. You say, well, if they're not judged for their sins, what kind of works can they be judged for? This is what is really going to shock people. They're good works. You can just imagine, here's Hitler standing before the Lord. The books are opened. Oh, you opened schools. Oh, yes, I, I opened schools. I started orphanages. I brought Germany out of the Weimar time when they were using wheelbarrows to haul enough money to buy a loaf of bread. I, I brought the entire nation up. Oh, you did all these great things. And then this, I just picture this great neon light flashing on. Isaiah 64, 6. All our righteousness is as filthy rags. Because nothing that we can do can meet the demand of God for perfect righteousness. Perfect righteousness is found only in Christ. Can you begin to see why the scripture tells us, Philippians tells us, uh, we're told in the Old Testament as well, every knee will bow. Romans 14, Paul quotes it. Every knee will bow and every tongue. This is going to be voluntary. This is not forced on them. When they see the overwhelming evidence and they see the grace that God made available to them and the sacrifice that Christ paid for them, 
the evidence will be so overwhelming, their conscience will be so totally smitten, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess the one thing that we tried to convince them of through our time on this earth and they laughed and scoffed and mocked that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God. Have you ever thought about the fact that every person in hell will be a believer? They just believe too late. Every one of them is going to know. Jesus Christ is the Son of God. Jesus Christ paid the penalty for my sins. Jesus Christ is Lord over everything, and I fully acknowledge it. You know what that tells me? It tells me that God doesn't send people to hell. People send themselves. People choose that eternal destiny. And in the end, by their own tongue, didn't Jesus say it? By your own words, you will be condemned. And I think that is, to me, what would make hell really hell. They were judged by the things according to, to what was written in the books. The sea gave up the dead that was in it, death and hell delivered up the dead that were in them, and they were judged, each one, according to his works. Then death and hell were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. First death is physical, second death, spiritual and eternal. Anyone not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. Who gets into the book of life? Scholars, commentaries, expositors uh, argue back and forth about this. Sometimes it's referred to as the book of life, sometimes as the Lamb's book of life. Uh, there are those, and I can, I can uh, see this point of view, uh, that the Lamb's book of life applies to all who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. The book of life possibly contains the name of everyone who's born. In other words, when you're born, your name's written in the book of the life. Literally, it's the book of the living. If you die without Christ, what happens? Your name is taken out. But for sure, we know one thing. If your name is not written in the Lamb's book of life, then you have chosen eternity without Christ and without hope. And that is the great tragedy. You know, we're in a rescue operation. It's, it's why we're here. Uh, we are called to be the light in the darkness. And believe me, the darkness is intensifying all around us. This world is becoming so evil that day by day I find myself oppressed with the evil of this world. Don't get me wrong, I love life. I enjoy many things. I have a great wife and a great family. I love being with fellow believers like yourselves, but there are times when the darkness and the evil around us just weighs on me so much. One day it's going to be over. And one day we are going to see our Savior face to face. And that day is going to make it all worthwhile. And my hope and my prayer, and certainly my prayer for each one of you, is that on that day we'll hear those words that will mean more than anything else. Well done. By the way, none of us do perfect. To me, the great thing about the grace of God is our sins have been blotted out 
all God sees of our life, the record of our life, is only going to contain one thing, what we have done by faith, what we have done in the Spirit, what we have done in the plan of God. That's going to be the record of my life. I would like my life to be more than a sentence. It would be nice to have a paragraph or a page, but that's all that's going to remain is what we do by faith. All right, there's Revelation 20. Go back if you have time. Go back through your notes. There's a lot there that we haven't had time to cover. Read through it. Uh, feel free, by the way, when we come back together next Friday, if you read through chapter 20 and you still have questions that are not clear, by all means, feel free to bring them up. Okay. I believe that we're going to celebrate communion. Am I right? Yes. What a wonderful opportunity to celebrate the Lord's table. You know, some of the places that we go, we celebrate the Lord's table, and it's a little bit hilarious because some of the places we go, they don't have grapes. So how do you have the Lord's table if you don't have grapes? And some of the places we go, they don't have bread. So you know what we do? In Papua New Guinea, for example, our bread is yams, because they have lots of yams. And the cup is coconut milk. You say, well, that's not really the Lord's table. Well, I kind of have a feeling God understands if you're someplace where there's not grapes and not bread, you use what, what you got. So... Thank you. But I always consider <clears throat> celebrating the Lord's table a really, really precious time. <clears throat> and the reason is because it apparently meant so much to Jesus Christ. You know, in, we're told by Paul in 1 Corinthians 11, in the night in which he was betrayed... And he knew everything that was coming. Uh, he would very shortly fight that tremendous battle in the Garden of Gethsemane. If there's any way, take this from me. By the way, he wasn't afraid of the nails. He wasn't afraid of the scourging. We would be terrified of it. That was not what troubled him. There, there never walked a man on this earth stronger, braver, more solid and sound than Jesus Christ. The thing he dreaded was the imputation of the sins of every member of the human race on his soul. I know each and every one of us have things in our life that we're ashamed of. He bore that shame. He bore the shame for every one of us. He bore the burden, he bore the judgment of that sin for every one of us. So the fact that knowing everything that he knew that was going to go on, he took time to just gather that little ragged band of disciples together and say, I want to leave you guys with something that means everything to me. He took the bread and he said, this is my body, which is given for you. They didn't understand it yet. 
And then what did he say? Do this in remembrance of me. Remember me. And I think so many times of the guys that have gone overseas to fight sometimes the wasted, worthless wars that we've gotten ourselves into, and you see pictures of them standing at the airport and they're hugging their wife and they're hugging their kids. What are they saying? Remember me. Remember me. This is what Jesus said. It's what, it, what was in his mind. And then he took the cup and he reminded them, this is, this is my blood. He didn't mean that this literally, as the Roman Catholics teach, turns into the body and the blood. Remember in John chapter 5 when he said, or John chapter 6 when he said, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no life in you. But he was talking about eating by faith, consuming by faith, taking something in and making it a part of who we are by faith. So as you hold this bread, I want you to just think of being one of the early disciples. You're walking along the road. You put your hand on the shoulder of the Lord Jesus Christ. Or you've camped by the road. The fire's burned down. It's early morning. And he comes and he shakes you awake. Why? Because we've got miles to cover. How many times, as John says, that which we have seen, which we have heard, which our hands have handled of the word of life. This bread is my body, which is given for you. Let's take it in remembrance of our Savior. And then the cup, the blood of Christ. And I believe that that term refers to so much more than just the blood that ran through his veins and that poured out of his wounds. I believe the term blood of Christ includes everything he suffered, the penalty for our sins that he paid willingly, voluntarily, why? So that if only one of us, if you were the only person in human history who would have believed, he still would have died for every member of the human race. That's love beyond my ability to comprehend. And when I think of, you know, no one knows us like we know ourselves. And oftentimes I'm overwhelmed when I think of the evil that lurks in my soul and that God loves me and sees it all and loves me in spite of it with a love that will never end. This cup is the new covenant. What's the promise of the new covenant? I will be their God. They will be my people. And their sins and iniquities I'll remember no more. Let's take that cup. Outstanding. Let's pray. Father, we do remember the sacrifice of our Savior. We look forward to the day when we'll see Him face to face. 
Help us in the meantime to be affected and impacted by the things that we've studied tonight, by the challenge of just celebrating the Lord's table, to long for His return, to look forward to His coming, but to live our lives in such a way that when He appears, we would not need to shrink away in shame, but we would look forward to hearing those words, well done. Well done in spite of your weaknesses, your frailties, your failures. The times you got knocked down, you never stayed down. You just kept getting back up. You just kept believing. You just kept trusting. You kept serving. We long to hear that commendation, Father. And so I pray for each and every one of us here tonight as we go our way, as we go out these doors. Help us not to forget we're here for a reason. We're on a mission. You have a purpose for our lives. Help us live in a worthy manner of our Savior and for His glory. For we pray it in His name. Amen. Amen.